You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, thank you for being here this morning. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder. If this is your first time here at Grace, um, I just wanted to make a few announcements before we jump into the book of Daniel. We've been excited about this for a long time, and it's finally here. Uh, on September 30th, October 1, we're going to have our next Grace Connection class. Just encourage you to sign up online if you're interested in that. If you're brand new to Grace, not quite ready for the new members class, which is what Grace Connection is, then perhaps you would join us on that Sunday after church, October 1, for our discovery lunch. You'll get to meet some of the elders and staff in an informal setting. And as Ricky mentioned also, before I jump in, uh, there are Daniel journals at the Next Steps table outside. Just turn right outside of the sanctuary doors and keep going right, and you'll, you'll find those. If you would like to have one to keep up with, it's a place for the scripture on one page, and on the facing page, it's the opposite page, there's a place for notes, so give you an opportunity to write in that journal as we go in Daniel. So as we think about Daniel, he's a pretty big character in Scripture. We know him quite well. Let me ask you this question. If you were to identify with anyone in Scripture, or who would you say you most closely identify with in Scripture? Now, I know that you'd want to say Daniel or Joseph because of their obedience to Christ, uh, possibly Mary because of right priorities, but more than likely we would say something like, I'm kind of like Peter because every time I open my mouth, it seems like I stick my foot in it, or I'm Martha running around doing things that are important but not the most important. Daniel would be one of those characters that ought to be at the top of our list of someone that we want to emulate. And without question, he is that guy. But is the book of Daniel more about Daniel the man, or is it more about our sovereign God who is faithful to his people, or more precisely, is this about Yahweh? Well, the title of the series will give you a clue as to where I stand on this issue. Daniel, Yahweh is faithful to his people, then, now, and forever. Thank you again, Dr. Calvert, for the title, and thank you, Mr. Shambly, for the design. It's beautiful, as always, another stellar design. You could probably make money doing this, Scott, you know, designing. I, you're pretty good at this. Well, there's a lot to unpack in the title itself, <laughs> and much more so in the book as we go. First of all, the name of God in the title is Yahweh. It's the name that God used for himself in relation with his covenant people. Anytime you see God speaking about himself as Yahweh, he's almost certainly talking to or on behalf of his people in the Old Testament. Daniel used this covenant name quite sparingly. In fact, it's only in one chapter, chapter 9, where he uses Yahweh seven times. Far more frequently, you will find 
Daniel referring to God as Elohim, uh, which emphasizes his marvelous majesty and power, and Adonai, meaning Lord or Master. So if Daniel only uses Yahweh very sparingly, it begs two questions as to why the name is in the title. Um, well, first of all, it, it begs the question, why did he use it so sparingly? And second, why then is it in the title? Well, for starters, Elohim is a, is a bit more generic name for God than Yahweh, which likely comes from the meaning to be or to exist. That's Yahweh. When you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, God is identifying himself as Yahweh or the name he uses in covenant relationship with his children. There are more elaborate uh, translations for all of these names, but I'll stop there. Perhaps Daniel used uh, a little bit more generic names for God because they would have been more familiar to the Babylonians. Uh, both Elohim and Adonai were used by the Israelis, but Yahweh is a far more personal name for God, which is perhaps why Daniel used this name so many times in his prayer, his intimate prayer with God in chapter 9. <clears throat> the reason that I'm using it is twofold. First, we know uh, that it was the God of Israel, or Yahweh, who was faithful to his people. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the connection between Yahweh in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. The New Testament authors made a point about the divinity of Jesus. We start off in the Old Testament in the Hebrew with Yahweh, the name Yahweh. Then when we get to the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So in other words, once the Greeks took over uh, the empire then it, Greek language very quickly became the, the, the language of all the empire. And so uh, there were Jews who were scattered because of Babylonian captivity at first, and then others kept conquering, and Jews got spread out all over, and synagogues started popping up. And so they wanted Gentiles to be aware of who Yahweh was. And so from the 3rd century to the 1st century B.C., there were several different authors working on a translation of the Old Testament into the Greek New Testament. 72, to be precise, Septuagint means 70, so it's a rounded off number. So you go from Yahweh in the Hebrew, now you, what are you going to use to translate the word Yahweh into Greek? Well, they use the Greek word kurios. It means Lord. It was a common word, but the, but the authors used kurios to refer to Yahweh. Well, now we're translating it into English, and kurios becomes Lord. But since the New Testament writers almost exclusively used Lord to refer to Jesus, we end up with Jesus. Yahweh is God. Jesus is God. So, we are looking to Jesus just like the Old Testament saints look to God. 
And Jesus died for the sins of the world so that all who repent of their sins and surrender their lives to him will be saved, whether they be Jew or Gentile. By the way, when the, when the, when the Jews were scattered all over the world and they set up synagogues and they, and they brought the Old Testament scriptures into the Greek language, well, it was a perfect setup once Jesus came, died, rose again, and his apostles took the message all over the empire, a lot of Gentiles had come under the umbrella of Judaism, but now Paul would come into those synagogues and preach the gospel, and they were like, yes, this is it, because the Holy Spirit drew them to Jesus. Daniel as we think about him, was a very godly man, but he was a sinner, just like we are, needing to be redeemed. As Sally Lloyd-Jones points out in the Jesus Storybook Bible, there's only one hero in the Bible, and, and it's Jesus. One author suggested that we approach Daniel something like uh, Daniel's free, three friends in a hot spot with Jesus. You know, we're going to see that uh, in just a few weeks. Uh, then another one said, maybe we should call it Jesus in the lion's den. We won't go that far. <laughs> but you get the point. We can say that this story is far more about God's faithfulness to Daniel and his friends and to his people than it, than it is about Daniel being faithful to God. In the same way that we can say Job's sufferings prefigured the sufferings of Christ, we can also say that Daniel's faithfulness prefigured the perfect obedience of Christ. It was a picture of the one who would come. But even so, Daniel needed a redeemer, and Jesus is the redeemer. So, hopefully that makes sense, and if so, let's get going. If not, talk to me after the service, and I'll try to explain it a little further. <clears throat> well, today's text is Daniel 1, the entire chapter. Our initial reading is going to be in Daniel 1, verses 1 through 7. It's our custom to stand for the reading of God's Word, so if you would, please stand. Daniel 1, 1 through 7, I will be reading from the English Standard Version. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, or Babylon, and to the house of his God and placed the vessels the holy vessels from the temple of God in, in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. 
They were educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So they were getting ready. Among those were among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs, who would be Ashpenaz, gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. <clears throat> so the title of today's message is Getting Settled, Living Faithfully in Babylon. Now, when I say getting settled, it's not like Daniel and his friends were getting settled into the new dorm like some of you did on move-in day. They were forcefully removed from Jerusalem in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign in Jerusalem as the king of Judah, and they were taken to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had demanded that Jehoiakim submit to him as his ruler and king. Jehoiakim said, we're going to, oh, okay, we'll do that. And so Babylon came in, Nebuchadnezzar came in, he took, took some of the uh, stuff from the, <coughs> from the house of God, he took some of the people and took them back to Babylon. He, he had uh, determined, as it was common in the day but for uh, kings who would conquer other nations, they would bring some of the finest, the best and the brightest of the land, the young men, and bring them into their own courts, teach them their ways, and then benefit from their wisdom. But was it really Nebuchadnezzar conquering Jerusalem? Well, Scripture tells us that God delivered them into their hands. Why did God deliver the Israelis or the Judeans into the hands of the Babylonians? It was punishment. God was delivering them because they had worshipped idols. They had wantonly made a mockery of God in his ways. And therefore, God kept his promise. When you deny me, when you serve other gods, when you call evil good and good evil, then I'm going to remove you from this land in the New Testament, when the Lord disciplines his children, it has a whole different feel. Why? Because Jesus took the punishment. God was punishing the Old Testament saints, but Jesus took the punishment. And when he disciplines us, oftentimes it's just like a parent saying you must clean your room before you can play. It's not punishment. It's just training. God is Conforming us and molding us more into the image of Christ. So, <clears throat> Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon in the first deportation of Judeans to Babylon in 605 BC. The book of Daniel, in fact, dates from 605 BC to 536 BC, almost 70 years. 
The first thing that empires would do with such prize catches was to seek to acclimatize their captives to their new surrounds. So Daniel and his three friends were given new names, names that took the emphasis off Yahweh. Every single one of those four names has Yahweh in its meaning. Yahweh is my strength. Yahweh is God. Um, or God is my strength. Maybe Daniel's didn't, but the other three had Yahweh. And he changed them to Babylonian names that gave homage to their homage to their particular gods. The king wanted them to eat Babylonian food and drink uh, and to be taught by the best teachers of the land. Daniel and his friends would have been trained in the University of Babylon where they studied Enuma Elish, creation story, Gilgamesh epic, flood story. And in addition, though, and maybe perhaps much more challenging, they were forced to study the black arts. They learned how to discern the ways with livers of animals. And they had to study astrology. There's even the possibility that the four young men were made eunuchs to be included in the king's service. It's a, it's a tad speculative, but it very well might have been prophesied in Isaiah 39, 6 through 7. So how could these four young men be faithful to Yahweh and at the same time adopt the ways of the new culture? Some adaptation was not only expected, it had been commanded by the Lord. Jeremiah, in chapter 29 of his book, sent this message to the exiles in the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He never wanted them to forget. This wasn't... Babylon conquering you. I sent you to Babylon. So he says in verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So when people say today, uh, this is a horrible world. We shouldn't bring children into it. What does the Lord say to us as his children? Same thing. Increase. Don't decrease. Seek, But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is good advice for us, right? There's no indication that Daniel and his friends refused to study the subjects that were contrary to their faith. Indeed, they were judged to be at the very top of their class. Even so, they drew a line. They constantly were anchored to Yahweh and his word. And they drew a line when they refused to keep the diet of the king, verses 8 through 10. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to deliver himself, to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs, Ashpenaz. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink, for why should he see that you were in a worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Why would Daniel not want to obey this command when they're studying all of these other things that are clearly against God's ways? We'll see as we go along that Daniel had no trouble offering political loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, probably when the temple was being destroyed, Daniel was faithful in service to Nebuchadnezzar all the way. So why did he draw the line here? Likely because the king's menu included unclean meats such as pork and shellfish, and thus it was against the dietary laws established in the Torah. Perhaps also he was concerned that these meats had been offered to idols. But look, the vegetables had likely been offered to idols as well. It's it's not crystal clear. Maybe the best guess, at least my best guess, is it's because that the foods would have defiled them on the inside. Remember, Jesus said, you think it's the food that goes in that defiles you, but you're defiled already on the inside. Although in chapter 10, we're going to find Daniel eating meat and drinking wine. In these first three years in Babylon, Daniel and his friends requested a special diet that separated them from the pagan ways and in the process pointed to Yahweh. While our text tells us that God granted favor to Daniel before Aspenaz, Ashpenaz, uh, this important official did not grant his request uh, for fear of punishment. And so then Daniel asked a lesser official to give it a test run, if he would. Verses 11 to 16. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Not only did the steward allow Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Hezariah to continue their special diet, but is every indication that he moved the diet of all the young men to the same diet. And I'm not so sure this sat well with the others. 
It's clear that God gave these young men from Jerusalem favor before the court officials and eventually before Nebuchadnezzar himself. Verses 17 to 21. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. In other words, Daniel personally served the most powerful kings in that part of the world for at least 66 years. What does this have to do with us? Quite a bit. Three lessons from Daniel 1, beginning with, this world is not our home. Live joyfully as elect exiles and sojourners in a foreign land. Are you more focused? Do you tend to be more focused on the things of God when everything is going well or when trouble is coming from every direction? Surely overwhelming loss and sorrow can tempt us to question God's love for us or question our faith. But I doubt we have faced circumstances anywhere close to as difficult as Daniel and his friends. There's no question that deep sorrow acquainted with the loss of freedom and separation from family and friends, not to mention the question of how such a thing could have happened to Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye. No doubt that this would have caused some concern for Daniel and his friends. We know for sure, though, that they went about their business with purpose and commitment to God, and it's likely that they were at least pleasant, if not overjoyed. So in these New Testament days, we are called not only to accept suffering, but to rejoice in suffering, even as we strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to live godly lives. That's what First Peter is all about, one of my favorite books in all the Bible. What's the difference between our day In Daniel's day, Jesus. Again, keep it all in perspective. We grieve when we suffer loss, just as others do. But with the cross in view, we know that Jesus gave everything so that we might live. And therefore, we rejoice that God, our sovereign God, loves us and is guiding us to make us more like Jesus. The New Testament has an altogether different perspective of this world as we look to Jesus' return the full, and the full establishment of his kingdom on the earth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh 
which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, which is at least speaking about Jesus' return. When, when all things are made clear, unbelievers who are being judged by the Lord are essentially going to say, I was wrong about you. I was wrong about you. <clears throat> Do you think it would be a good idea to make rejoicing in the Lord a spiritual discipline? I mean something that you commit to doing every day. I think it probably would. It's the same as worship. When we come before the Lord in prayer, do you just jump in automatically with request? Or do you take time to worship the Lord? Take time to rejoice. And might we also include as a spiritual discipline, living intentionally as though this world is not our home? I mean, all kinds of ways we could do that. Just give up some of the things that we just feel like we must do and have in order for this world to be meaningful to us. Or uh, maybe in your family, uh, you could say, remember kids, when you go to school, we're exiles. Live like it today. Or the children can say, remember, Dad, going off to work. You're sojourners in this land. Your home is the kingdom of God. Look, you'll figure it out, I'm sure. Second, and this is a big one. It is not our similarities with the world that point others to Jesus. It is our differences. Live unashamedly for Jesus. How many of you have been on that track where... You're like, okay, the world really hates this particular doctrine, but I think I could, you know, I can still love them in a certain way. And you get down the road, and after a while, you realize there's no stopping. At some point, either you're going to have to draw the line, and you're probably going to have to retreat back to here or keep going. And if you're going to stand with Jesus, you're going to have to pull back. But it's the very thing that attracts unbelievers to Christ. When you get, when you live every bit as much like the world as you possibly can, and you're like, hey, yeah, that's cool, right? We're all, we're all good here. Except I got Jesus, and you'd be a lot happier if you had Jesus. No, you won't be happier unless you intentionally choose to rejoice. Life is difficult. With Jesus, as much for us as it was for Daniel, if we perceive it the right way. No, we're not slaves. We're not under the dominion of, an, of another world power. But we are at odds with the ways of the world. Over and over in Daniel, we hear pagan kings and others exclaim, there is no God like the God of the Jews. They were talking about Yahweh, and in almost every case, it was because God's children refused to conform to the ways of the world. 
or to the demands of the political order. It's a tricky one for, isn't it? Uh, for us, isn't it? I mean, Paul said, I've become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. And he means, of course, that God might save them through my witness. And yet the New Testament makes it every bit as clear as the Old Testament that those who belong to the Lord or to Yahweh or to Jesus are to live differently than unbelievers. The world is telling us to follow our hearts, and Jesus is telling us to die to ourselves daily. The way of the believer is the way of the cross. Daniel and his friends were focused on Yahweh, and our focus is to be on Jesus, which is impossible when our affections and our love are divided. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Have we forgotten these verses? And we used to hear them a lot back there when we were legalists, right? Well, guess what? These are words of grace. We're called to stand out. It's tough enough for you extroverts, but introverts, that's really bad, isn't it? It is not our similarities with this world that attracts others to Jesus. It is our differences. Maybe this this just doesn't seem to be true at times. But when someone loses all hope, they know where to go for answers and for stability. Last, our sovereign God will grant us favor as it suits his purposes. Live with a heart of trust even when your circumstances are dire. If you had been standing around when Stephen was stoned to death, most likely you would have been tempted to think, did God fail Stephen, what happened? Oh, he had a little other thing going on, just that the apostle Paul watched it, was drawn to Christ, and saved. Told us all about the gospel. At the beginning of every situation in Daniel, our men are in dire straits. But Yahweh was and is faithful always, even if he does not deliver us. He knows best. Surely, the three Hebrew children understood this when they said, you need to understand, O king, God can deliver us from this fire, but whether he does or not, 
We're not going to worship that idol, that statue. We're not going to worship you. We worship Yahweh. They were willing to go to the flames because of their trust in a sovereign God who knows more than we can ever understand. They trusted Yahweh. And only in eternity will we fully know how God has used us despite what seems to be debilitating and disqualifying circumstances, perhaps. Yahweh is faithful to his people, then, now, forever. Our primary responsibility, it's coming to us from one text after another, is to trust. Even our faith, as we learned last week, comes from the Lord. Perhaps our biggest challenge is to be well acquainted with the ways of the world as both Daniel and the Apostle Paul were without being swayed and tainted by the world. May Jesus be exalted in our lives. That's a wonderful place to begin and to end. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, uh, I suppose we, we're tempted to be happy to <clears throat> read this story, this moment in history <laughs> from a distance, and yet, so very often we find ourselves in the same place, needing to trust you when life doesn't make sense. And so, Lord, may we learn from Daniel and his friends, but may we learn what they learned, that you were faithful. May Jesus be exalted in our lives. May we rejoice knowing that we are being conformed to his image and that one day this sorrow and sadness in this world will turn into unspeakable joy and understanding. For now, give us hearts of trust. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.